Chapter Twenty of the Brand of Silence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Brand of Silence by Harrington Strong. Chapter Twenty, Up the River. Coadley had not gone for more than an hour when Detective Jim Farland arrived at the hotel and made his way immediately to Sidney Prale's suite. He found Prale pacing the floor angrily, and Murk sitting in a corner and watching him. The police detective, after doing duty for a few days, had been withdrawn, as it seemed evident that Prale had no intention of jumping his bail or eluding trial in any other way. "'What's the trouble now?' Farland asked. "'Coadley has just been here,' Prale replied. "'He has quit us.' Our friends, the enemy, have reached him. "'You couldn't get any sort of an explanation out of him?' Farland asked. "'Nothing at all. He simply informed me that he was done and that I had to get another lawyer. "'I'll try to find an honest one for you,' Farland declared. "'I happen to know a clever young chap who probably will take the case, especially if I explain the thing to him, for he loves a fight.' There is no special hurry, but I'll try to attend to it sometime today. Anything new? Prale asked. That is what I am waiting to hear. What did you do last night, Murk? Murk related his adventure at length, while Jim Farland listened gravely, nodding his head now and then and looking puzzled at times. I'd like to know the identity of that masked man, the detective said, when Murk had finished. The main trouble in this case is that we do not know the people we are fighting. We know that Kate Gilbert is one of them, and have reason to suspect that George Lurton is another. But there is somebody bigger behind, and that's a fact. "'What are you going to do next?' Prale asked. "'I'm going to pay a little attention to the Rufus Shepley murder case. I'm going to find out, if I can, who killed Shepley and why.' I am of the opinion that the murder is distinct from this other trouble, Sid. Perhaps a clue to the murder, however, will give us a clue to the whole thing, for it is certain that somebody has attempted to hang that crime on you. How about George Lurton? Prale asked. We know that he tried to help smash your alibi by telling a falsehood and by sending those notes to the barber and the merchant. But we do not know his motive, unless it is simply a hatred of you, Sid, and envy of the million dollars you got in Honduras. I'm going to get out of here now and get busy. Anything for us to do? Prale asked. Keep out of trouble. That is the principal thing. It appears that every time either of you goes out, you get knocked on the head. I'll report again as soon as I can. Jim Farland left them and hurried from the hotel. He went to the hostelry where Rufus Shepley had met his death, was admitted to the suite, and made an exhaustive investigation which revealed nothing of importance. He visited the New York offices of the company in which Shepley had been interested and questioned officials and clerks, but got no inkling of a state of affairs that might have led to a murder. He was told that the company's business was in proper shape, 
and that Rufus Shepley had had no financial trouble of any sort so far as his associates knew. Farland left the office and continued his investigations. In the evening he went to his home for a meal and admitted to himself that he did not know any more than when he had started out that morning. "'It gets my goat,' he said to his reflection in the bathroom mirror. "'I'll have to begin working from some other starting point. I've made a mistake somewhere, or overlooked something that I should have seen. Makes me sore.' The telephone bell rang, and Farland went to the instrument to hear the voice of a man he did not know. "'I understand that you are interested in the Shepley murder case,' his caller said. "'I am working on it, yes. Who is talking?' Farland demanded. "'I'm not ready to mention any names. If you want to hang up, go ahead and you'll miss something important. Or if you want to listen for a minute—' "'I'll listen,' Farland said. "'I know a lot about that Shepley case.' but I am in a position where I have to be careful. If you'll do as I say, you can learn something you'd like to know. "'What do you want me to do?' Farland asked. "'Meet me in some place where nobody will see us talking, and I'll tell you a few things. But I must have your promise that you'll not reveal the source of the information.' "'I'll protect you, unless you are mixed up in it to such an extent that I dare not do so.' Farland said. "'I'm not guaranteeing to shield any murderer or accessory.' "'I had nothing to do with the murder, if that is what you mean,' came the reply. "'Then where do you want me to meet you, and when? Can you make it this evening?' "'Yes, and suppose that you set the meeting place, one that you know will be all right for both of us.' Farland was glad to listen to that sentence. He had half believed that this was nothing more than a trap, that some of Sidney Prale's mysterious enemies were attempting to lure him to some out-of-the-way place and get him in their power. But if he was to be allowed to name the meeting place, it seemed to indicate that everything was all right in that regard. Farland thought a moment, and then suggested a certain famous restaurant on Broadway and a table in a corner of the main room where a man could lose himself in the crowd. But that did not meet with the approval of the man at the other end of the telephone wire. "'Nothing doing in that place,' he said. "'One of the men interested in this thing hangs out there almost every evening. He'd be sure to see us. He knows how much I know about it, and he'd suspect things in a second if he saw me talking to you. Then it'd be made hot for me.' I've got to protect myself, of course. Suggest a place yourself, Farland said. Make it outside somewhere. How about some place in Riverside Park? Suits me, Farland replied. The man at the other end of the wire gave the directions after much seeming speculation and many changes. Jim Farland was to go to Grant's tomb and from there to a certain place near the river. The other man would be in the neighborhood watching, he said, would recognize Farland as he passed the tomb, and then would follow and speak to him when nobody else was near. Farland agreed and made the engagement for an hour and a half later, 
saying that he could not get there before that time. It would not be the first time that Jim Farland had obtained an important clue because somebody interested had grown disgruntled and had turned against his pals, and he supposed this to be a case of that sort. Before leaving home, Farland made sure that his automatic was in excellent condition and that he had his handcuffs and electric torch and other paraphernalia of his trade. He made his way to Columbus Circle, having decided to walk to the rendezvous. Farland was in no hurry. He observed all who passed him, and he frequently made experiments to ascertain whether he was being followed. He decided, after a time, that if he was being shadowed, the person doing it was too clever for him. He came to Riverside Drive through a cross street and approached the famous tomb as cautiously as possible, keeping in the shadows, alert to discover anybody who might be acting at all suspiciously. Farland felt sure that this was no trap, but he was not taking chances. He always had been known to his friends as a cautious man. He reached the tomb, finally, and glanced around. Half a dozen persons were passing, some men and some women, some alone and others in couples, but none were of suspicious appearance. Farland glanced at his watch to be sure that it was the appointed time. He strolled around the tomb and waited ten minutes longer, for he did not care to find later that he had left the appointed spot too early and that the other man had not seen and followed him. At the end of the extra ten minutes, Farland lighted one of his big black cigars and started walking toward the river, following the route the other man had designated over the telephone. He walked slowly, and not for an instant did he throw caution aside. Here and there were dark spots where Farland expected to hear his name spoken, spots where an attack might be made if one was contemplated by foes. It was as he was passing one of these that a whisper came from the darkness. "'Mr. Farland!' The detective whirled toward the sound, one hand diving into a coat pocket and clutching his automatic. "'Well?' "'Be as silent as possible. Do not flash your torch yet. You may do so presently, so you can see who is talking. I am the man who called you up by telephone.' "'Come out where I can get a glimpse of you,' Farland commanded, ready for trouble." He could see a shadow detach itself from the patch of gloom in front of him and approach. "'That is close enough for the present,' Farland said. "'I'm not taking chances on you until I know who's talking to me.' "'I don't blame you, Mr. Farland, under the circumstances. If you are sure that nobody is approaching, I'll come out into the light so you can see my face.' Farland glanced up and down the walk quickly. As he did so, he heard a step behind him. He whirled, the automatic came from his pocket ready for use, and a man crashed into him. The one who had been talking from the patch of shadow rushed forward at the same instant. Farland managed to fire once, but the shot went wild. Then a third man rushed from the darkness, and the detective had the automatic torn away and found that he had a battle on his hands. One man was upon his back, throttling him so that he could not utter a cry. The others were trying to throw him to the ground. 
Farland wondered whether that single shot had been heard, whether assistance would reach him, for he knew that here was a battle he could not win by force. Finally they got him down. Something was thrust into his mouth and bandaged there, effectually gagging him. He was turned over on his face, and his wrists were lashed behind him. Then his ankles were fastened, and two of the men, at the whispered instruction of the third, picked him up like a sack of meal and carried him into the deep shadows. They did not stop there, but continued toward the river, holding a conversation in whispers at times, and stopping now and then for a moment to rest and listen. Farland had been quiet, gathering his strength, and suddenly he began to struggle. It was nothing worse than annoyance for his opponents. He was unable to make an outcry that would attract attention, and he was unable to put up an effective fight. They threw him upon the ground again and held him there. "'Another little trick like that, and we'll give you something to keep you quiet,' one of the men whispered into his ear. "'We've got you, and you'd better let it go at that.' Once more they picked him up and went toward the river. They reached it, and one of the men hurried away while the other two guarded Farland. Five minutes passed, and then a powerful motorboat slipped toward the shore. An instant later, Farland was aboard it, a prisoner, and the boat was rushing through the great river toward the north. Farland made an attempt to watch the lights along the shore, but one of the men threw a sack over his face so that he could not see and so he merely listened to the beating of the boat's engine, and tried to estimate with what speed they were running and how much mileage the craft was covering. The sack was heavy, and Jim Farland felt himself half-smothered, the perspiration pouring from his face and neck. He had grown angry for a moment, angry at himself for walking into the trap, even while suspecting that one might exist angry at these three men who had captured him so close to Riverside Drive. Then his rage passed. He was experienced enough to know that an angry man is at a disadvantage in a game of wits, and that wits and nothing else could get him out of the present predicament. Finally he felt the boat turning, the speed was cut off, and it drifted against something. Farland was lifted out of the motorboat, but one of the men held the sack over his head, and he was unable to see. Once more he was carried, this time away from the river, and he could tell nothing except that the men who carried him were struggling up a sharp slope. Farland made no attempt to fight or struggle now, knowing that it would avail him nothing to attempt to throw off these three men. He had decided to conserve his strength, and to trust to his usual good fortune to get a chance later to even things by turning the tables on his captors. Suddenly the sack was taken from his head, and he was able to breathe better. He found that he was beside a road in which stood an automobile. Two of the men lifted him, tossed him inside the machine, and then got in themselves. The driver started the engine, threw in the clutch, and soon the car was being driven at a furious pace along the winding road. "'Look around all you want to,' one of Farland's captors growled at him. "'You won't even know where you are when you get there.' 
End of chapter 20. Recording by Roger Moline.